Well, hello again, and welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth. I'm Tony Payne. Great to have you with me again this week. And this week, I'm going to continue on from where we left off last time in answering your questions, and in answering one question in particular, one that's been asked by a few people over the last couple of months, and that's been niggling away at me as well, as I've continued to think about evangelism and the gospel. And the question goes something like this. First of all, let us agree that there is only one gospel. Not many gospels. There's only one. Secondly, let's also agree that every person we speak the gospel to will have different questions, will be at a different point. They'll come to the gospel with different presuppositions, with different cultural presuppositions. And so any particular conversation, gospel conversation, or gospel talk or presentation may well start at a different entry point, may touch on different issues or questions, may begin in a different way and have a different kind of shape to it and use different language or different metaphors along the way. So let us agree that gospel conversations and presentations will vary according to the people we're talking to. So the question is, how can this be? How can we think about this? How can each gospel conversation or presentation be the same since there's only one gospel, and yet different. How can it be same, same, but different? That's the question I want to dig into in today's edition of The Painful Truth. Well, that was a bit of a surprise, wasn't it? Throwing the intro music into the middle of the introduction like that. But look, it's good to keep you guys guessing. A little bit like praying after the first three or four minutes of the sermon rather than at the very beginning. But let's get on to our question, the question of how the gospel can be one thing and yet many things. I'd just like to mention too that this is one of the free public posts of The Painful Truth since it sort of continues on from last week. I hope you're enjoying it and if you'd like to get every post every week, just remember you can subscribe, you can become a partner of The Painful Truth and get that as well. But let's get on to our issue. And it's an important one because it affects not only how we preach the gospel, of course, in evangelistic talks or courses or in books, but how we train Christians to understand that gospel and chat about it with their friends. And that's why I've been thinking about this issue quite a lot recently. As you know, I've been revising and rewriting the Two Ways to Live materials and the training material in particular just recently. And so it's a big question. Too big a question really, I guess, to answer completely and satisfactorily in this little podcast. But I do have one thought to offer that I hope might move this discussion forward. So let us imagine that our gospel conversation or presentation starts by talking about something good in the world that our friends want more of, like beauty or love or justice. Let's say that's the opening or the way the conversation starts, or alternatively, something bad in the world that our friends want less of, like suffering or injustice, or the fact that I'm lonely and my job stinks and I feel desperate, or something like that. Now, one increasingly common approach to evangelism suggests that we should frame our presentation of the gospel around these commonly held culturally framed aspirations or desires or issues in the lives of our hearers. 
And we do that by, first of all, affirming what we can affirm that is good about these aspirations or desires, and so kind of resonating with how people are feeling about these things. But then secondly, challenging the dysfunctional way that we in our culture understand these things and seek to meet these desires, showing that our way of pursuing these things or understanding these things just doesn't work. And then thirdly, offering the gospel news that there is an answer or fulfillment of these things that we're chasing or that we desire or aspire to, and that that answer is found in what God has done through Jesus. And this is sometimes called the resonance-dissonance gospel approach. Start by resonating with, with what the culture or the hearer is feeling or wanting or aspiring to or in some way searching for, showing the critique or dissonance that uh, the way in which they're seeking those things just doesn't work, and then providing the gospel as a kind of solution to those things. And there's a lot to like about this. Uh, particularly in how this approach really starts by listening carefully to each person or each culture and seeks to have a kind of gracious, salty conversation about it that bounces off those questions and issues that come up in everyday life. It reminds me of the kind of conversation, gospel conversation in Colossians 4, where we interact wisely with outsiders and know how to answer them and so on. But it seems to me that there's a weakness here as well, a significant weakness potentially, or at least there often is in the way this kind of conversation or presentation unfolds. And if I can put it in terms of two ways to live, the weakness is that this conversation can glide too quickly from the second half of point two to the second half of point five. Now that might be a little bit hard to understand, especially for those of you who aren't super familiar with Two Ways to Live. So let me explain what I mean. Point two of Two Ways to Live is about sin. It says we all reject God as our ruler by running our own lives our own way. But by rebelling against God's way, we damage ourselves, each other and the world. And coming as it does after point one, which is about God being the creator and ruler of all things, point two of Two Ways to Live presents a picture of a world gone wrong because of our rebellion against the Creator. And so there is plenty of scope to open up a conversation of this kind of resonance-dissonance variety. God has made a good world, and so beauty and justice and meaning and freedom and a good job are all indeed really good things that we want and, and we experience to some extent. But our ability to experience them and to find these things is drastically compromised because of our disconnection with the Creator and His ways. So far, so good then. In this sense, the resonance-dissonance gospel approach is sounding quite similar to Two Ways to Live in many respects so far. But what frequently happens next is that point two is not fully explored. We don't fully explore the nature of sin and rebellion and then points three and four of Two Ways to Live, if I can put it that way, are skimmed over a little too quickly in order to get to point five. Point five is about the resurrection and the benefits that flow from it. It says that God raised Jesus to life again as the ruler and judge of the world. Jesus has conquered death, now brings forgiveness and new life, and will return in glory. The blessings of Jesus' resurrection, the blessings of forgiveness and new life that he brings are indeed the answer to 
our frustrated desires and aspirations. In Jesus, the meaning or freedom or beauty or justice we've been longing for can actually be found. By having a right relationship with God through him, there is a new and better life available, both now and forever. The life we were kind of looking for without even knowing it. However, this too quick or too easy move from the problem of point two, the frustration of our lives in point two, to the blessing of the gospel in point five can be very misleading because point two not only describes a world gone wrong and our lives gone wrong, but it outlines the fundamental disease, if I can put it that way, of which our negative experience of life is the symptom. The underlying problem is the willful fracturing of our relationship with God as creator and ruler. And we can call that rebellion or rejection or turning away or hostility or suppressing the truth and embracing the lie, or we might even call it sin. But whatever phraseology is most suitable, the key point in point two of two ways to live is establishing this fundamental or larger problem that we have with God, of which our current experience is the byproduct. And flowing on from that, the larger judgment of God against us, of which our current frustrated and negative experience of life is but a foretaste. And that's, of course, moving on to point three. Because only by getting to point three of two ways to live, as it were, about the reality of of God's judgment against us, the reality of death and judgment, as God's punishment for our rebellion against him, only then can we really coherently talk about why a death is necessary on our behalf in order to save us, about why someone dying on our behalf is such good news, and that's point four. And in much the same way, only by establishing God as our ruler in point one as the king or lord, whose rule we reject in some way in point two, whether we want to say rebel or reject or hostility or enmity or whatever phrase or metaphor we want to use there. Only then can we also coherently explain how the resurrected Jesus has become the ruler, God's ruler overall, the ruler that humanity was always meant to be. And this can be the real problem with this resonance-dissonance gospel approach, depending on how it's used. Because the presenting issue, the dissonance, is set up in terms of the frustration or dysfunction of our desires, our culturally framed aspirations, then how Jesus' death is the solution to that, the solution to that frustration, becomes very difficult to explain, let alone how and why Jesus' resurrection is so central and so important. And these are the two central unchanging truths of the gospel. If we want to say the gospel is one thing that doesn't change, we'd want to say that the substitutionary death of Jesus and his resurrection to be the glorious Lord of all, his resurrection as the Christ, would be those two central truths. As Paul summarizes it so beautifully, Jesus the Christ, the King, Jesus Christ and him crucified, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That's the thing that he wants to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And our framing of the human problem or situation must lead us to present those twin truths 
really clearly. In other words, the way we talk about our current experience with all its problems and frustrations, and often that's where gospel conversations begin, the way we talk about that experience must lead us to a point where a substitutionary death for sins is God's gracious answer to that problem, and where the culmination of the message is the resurrected Christ, under whose rule we now gladly and repentantly live. Now, our conversations about the gospel will indeed start in a thousand different ways, because people are in a thousand different circumstances. Our friends will come to those conversations with different issues and questions and problems, with aspirations and attitudes. And this does mean that gospel conversation and gospel presentation as well, gospel talks, will differ from each other in a massive number of ways. There's no one form of words that we take out of our pocket and deposit in the lap of everyone we speak to. Now, ironically, I think, two ways to live has sometimes been seen as just this, a kind of one-size-fits-all form of words that you blurt out onto people that you speak to. But this was never its intended use, and it's not how it's been used when it's been used well. Quite the opposite, in fact. It was designed to equip Christians to have these thousand different conversations, starting at different points with different topics, depending on their hearers, but all of them resolving down in one direction eventually, because the one gospel will always have the same stubborn shape or form, it seems to me. It will always lead to an explanation of Jesus' substitutionary death for sins, and his glorious resurrection as the Lord and ruler of all, along with the response that these twin truths call for. That is essentially the response of faith and repentance. Now I wonder, might this be a way for us to conceive of gospel preaching and gospel conversation as always same-same, but different? Well, what do you think? Is that a helpful way of thinking about the way in which the gospel is always the same, that it always resolves in the same direction and has the same stubborn shape or form, even though our way into those conversations and that presentations will be different. Let me know what you think. A couple of further questions and caveats that come to mind, just as I keep thinking about this. Must every conversation or presentation or sermon contain the whole thing every time? Must there always be substitutionary death at the cross and resurrection in equal quantity in every conversation or talk. Well, that was the issue I talked about briefly last week, and so you might want to go back and look at last week's uh, episode to hear thoughts on that. Uh, Secondly, just on this resonance-dissonance gospel framework, I'm not sure who first came up with it. I know Tim Keller has recommended it, uh, as has Sam Chan in his book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World. Uh, as have uh, Josh Shatraw and Alan in their very comprehensive book, Apologetics at the Cross, that I'm reading at the moment. Like Two Ways to Live, I'm quite sure that this framework, Resonance Dissonance Gospel, can be used well or poorly. Done well, I think, it wouldn't be so different from Two Ways to Live and other good gospel frameworks. It would depend really on how the dissonance was done and then how the gospel was done. That is, whether or not it zoomed out to the more fundamental problem of sin and God's judgment, thus making the gospel explanation of 
substitutionary death and resurrection coherent. So it could be done well. But having seen this resonance-dissonance gospel framework often used in the way described above at the beginning of this episode, I thought it was a good foil for discussing this issue. Now, this whole discussion also raises the interesting question of which aspects of the conversation or gospel presentation are actually gospel and which bits are kind of preparing for or leading into the gospel and then responding to the gospel. And one of our regular readers, Jack, wrote in with a really perceptive question on this just earlier this week. Uh, He said this, Is the call to repentance and faith part of the content of the gospel or is it a consequence or implication of the gospel? In favour of the latter, that is, a consequence, would be the impetus to restrict the content of the gospel to just the announcement of Christ and his work, independent of any response that it demanded, though such a demand is clearly still the necessary implication, as it is in, say, Acts 2.38. But if we looked at summaries like Romans 1, 1 1-4, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, 2 Timothy 2.8, and their focus purely on Christ, it might push us in that direction. In favour of the former, that is, that repentance and faith is part of the gospel itself, I've been pondering what kind of news or message or speech act the gospel is, noting that it's a message that can be disobeyed, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, and also see 1 Peter 4.17 and Romans 10.16. Uh, the obedience of faith in Romans 1.5, given its proximity to 1.1-4, is also instructive, Jack says. That a message can be obeyed or disobeyed suggests to me something about what kind of message it is, not just a disinterested announcement, but a summons, a command, and therefore the call to respond is something intrinsic to and constitutive of the message itself, not merely an implication thereof. Alternatively, is this just somehow a false dichotomy, or splitting hairs, or separating things that ought only be distinguished? Well, thank you for that perceptive question and the proposed answers you put forward, Jack. Very insightful. It might feel like hair splitting, and I guess we need to be wary of that. But bringing this distinction or issue into the open is valuable in my view, because on one hand, we don't want to find ourselves preaching the fruit of the gospel, that is, the response it calls for and the response we make and what it does in our lives. We don't want to end up preaching that as the gospel itself. But also, we certainly don't want to find ourselves preaching a gospel that doesn't call for and require response, as Jack points out. And as he also kind of hints at, perhaps speech act theory, the one we spoke about uh, just recently in an earlier episode, does help us a little here. Because the force of the gospel, the force of that kind of announcement, is to tell forth that certain things have happened, to announce that certain Things have happened in history, that Jesus has died and has risen from the dead. But it's also to promise that certain things have happened and are now true and will happen on that basis, that Jesus is Lord and now grants forgiveness and new life and will return to judge. The kind of speech that the gospel is, is not just a declaration, but also a promise, I think we'd say. And this same speech act does therefore look for an expected and appropriate response from its hearer, a response of faith or obedience or repentance or however we want to describe it. 
So I think you're right, Jack. I think the content and the response are distinguishable, and it's helpful to be aware of that distinction. But as you also say, I don't think they're separable. I think they're part of the same speech act. So thank you for raising that question. Now, as I've mentioned before, this is one of those free public painful truth episodes for everybody on the list. Hope you enjoyed it. And please pass it around to your friends as freely and as much as you'd like to. But if you'd like to get next week's post, which of course will be unmissable and possibly life-changing, then you have to rise to the next level of involvement, which is to become a partner or subscriber. And to do that, just head over to the Painful Truth website. That's thepainfultruth.online, thepainfultruth.online, and click subscribe. And you can go through, and for just a few measly dollars a month, you can not only keep me alive and help support the ministry that I'm doing, but become a partner and keep getting the extremely valuable Painful Truth delivered to you every week. Well, that's enough of that sort of thing. Uh, I think you get the message. Thanks again for being with me this week. Lovely to be able to talk with you again and to discuss the gospel. What better thing could there be than to talk about that together? Hope you found it helpful. And please get in touch with your thoughts and reactions and insights. Uh, just email me at tonyjpain at me.com or go across to the website and make a comment on the text version of the post over there. Well, I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.